Welcome to this week's edition of the Aquila Report in Weekly Review. Uh, this is our weekly coming before you and bringing the top 10 articles that the readers of the Aquila Report from last week uh, clicked on and read. And so then there those numbers are compiled and brought to you. And then on the Tuesday following uh, that week, uh, we publish uh, those top 10 articles and they're sent out by way of an electronic newsletter. Uh, and you can, if you don't receive it, can sign up for it by going to theaquilareport.com and you will be able to uh, get that um, the newsletter sent to your box. And I can assure you that we do not share our mailing list with anyone else. We use it only for uh, information for the Aquila Report. So this is Dominic Aquila, the uh, editor of the Aquila Report. I welcome you again for this week's edition. We have uh, time for myself and Paul Harrell to just go back and forth with these top 10, just so that you'll uh, it'll pique the interest and uh, tease a little bit along the way and trust it will be helpful to you. So welcome, Paul, to our yep. getting together again. Yeah, this collection of top 10 is thought-provoking in a lot of different ways. Good. Well, let's go ahead and get started then. Uh, the article that was hit number one mostly, uh, most of the time, uh, was an update from the uh, PCA Standing Judicial Commission on where things are with the Greg Johnson case. Uh, this has been a case that has uh, uh, stirred a lot of interest because of the nature of the debate and the concerns that are here. Uh, we won't go into much detail on that. We'll let you read the document itself, but uh, we can say that uh, Greg Johnson is the pastor of Memorial Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, Missouri, and there have been questions with regard to uh, what his uh, what his definitions of an, of uh, same-sex attraction. Uh, he himself is not a practicing um, homosexual, but uh, says that he would identify as a gay uh, Christian, and he's used that term of himself. So that has created quite a stir uh, and debate within the Presbyterian Church in America. And so through different routings and ways of, that only can wind in a uh, in our ecclesiastical system, uh, the uh, ca cases have now come before the Standing Judicial Commission, uh, which is the Sewer Lake Supreme Court of the PCA. So just in very briefly in this article, we'll just give this update and I'll give a little bit of background just because of the interest the that uh, is in this. And that's the reason I think this article was number one, uh, that the uh, matter started uh, back in uh, 2018. Uh, when there was a conference held in St. Louis and hosted at the Memorial Presbyterian Church uh, uh, known as Revoice. And the Revoice conference basically wasn't uh, time for those who I self-identify as uh, gay Christians uh, to be able to come together and uh, share together and claim that this would also be a time where they could flourish in their uh, Christianity. And so that created a lot of stir and a lot of debate. Uh, eventually leading to the General Assembly appointing a committee uh, to study the uh, uh, what the scripture and the confession of faith has to say have to say about um, same-sex attraction and the whole matter of sanctification and those kinds of things. So the committee on human sexuality um, has, 
completed its report and we were supposed to consider it as a general assembly in uh, the uh, June uh, 2020 general assembly. But as we all know, uh, COVID had a different uh, intention. And so uh, most of the denominational um, national meetings were not able to meet as many other kinds of meetings are also were scaled back or uh, moved into a different kind of venue. So we have that study committee report. Meanwhile, the uh, number of our presbyteries, which are regional bodies, uh, requested that the General Assembly assume original jurisdiction of um, Dr. Johnson. And uh, the uh, that went before the Standard Judicial Commission, and they are considering that. And we have a many uh, indication here from this report and this article uh, so, that the that the uh, Standard Judicial Commission, the SJC, has now sort of moved those uh, requests to the back burner because then uh, there was a complaint that was filed, and this complaint, a complaint, is a uh, it's sort of a, a, a suit, if you would, in the church, alleging that a court of the church, whether it's a session or a presbytery, has erred in some decision. And in this instance, uh, the Missouri Presbytery that has oversight of the, that, air, that region uh, and also over uh, Greg Johnson, uh, this uh, did conduct an investigation to see if the there was a preponderance of evidence that would be uh, that would lead to a, uh, a strong presumption of guilt, and if that were the case, then the presbytery would, you know, file charges and conduct a trial. Uh, in this case, the presbytery did their investigation and claimed that they did not find a strong presumption of guilt, and so a complaint was filed against that decision or that action of the court. They the uh, presbytery then received it. They denied the complaint, so now it has been carried to the Standing Judicial Commission, where they will now consider it. And so that's what this is. It's an update. This article gives an update of that and explains a little bit of some of what I just said. So it's an important uh, time in the life of the PCA as the debate and the consideration of this judicially goes forward. So, Dominic, I have a question for you. What what are, what are the stakes? You said it's an important time, but what, yeah. what are the stakes here? If the SJC, you know, uh, overturns the Missouri Presbytery's ruling or if they affirm the Missouri Presbytery's yeah. ruling, what does that practically mean for people who are in the PCA? Okay, well, that's a good question, and some, in one sense, it's not really easy to answer because we really haven't faced something quite like this before. So we take a stab at it and see if we can make some sense of it. Okay. But if now that's before the uh, the SJC, they have uh, basically two options. One is that they sustain the complaint, which means they approve it, or they deny it, which means they just say they basically dismiss the case. If they uh, sustain it. What they would mean is they would have two options at that point. The SJC could then uh, craft a in their report a uh, an indictment style response report that would then be sent back to the presbytery, Missouri Presbytery, uh, with instructions that they are to conduct a trial based on the what they were what they found what the SJC found and what they did and so that would require them to do it or 
they could do that by sustaining a complaint and determine and decide that they that the SJC itself will assume original jurisdiction over uh, uh, Dr. Johnson and then conduct the trial themselves. So those will be the two options. What will happen in the mindset and the emotions of the church on if it happens that way? It's very difficult to to understand. If they should deny it, then I do think what we'll find is that uh, there will probably be some kind of movement of some churches. Uh, maybe it'll get organized, but right now there's nothing on the horizon with regard to this that would could lead to a division within the church. It could. Again, this is on uh, chartered territory, and it's hard to know. But those are your two options, sustain it or deny it. Mm. Sustain it, they'll there'll be a trial conducted either by the press day under the instruction that given by the SJC or the SJC itself will take the case and do the trial themselves. Or, and if they deny it, then that means the matter is now over. You know, that's a really good, um, I really think that's a really good summary, really good crack at what's going to happen. And it just kind of dawned on me that, you know, if, if they were to, you know, sustain the complaint, you got to know that there's going to be mainstream press attention uh, to this about, uh, you know, a church dragging, a, uh, you know, dragging a gay Christian through the mud or in that sort of thing. So there a lot of, uh, I would say, secular cultural negative publicity potentially associated with this. And it could get so bad that the progressives. Uh, they, they maybe they don't want to be affiliated with this. I mean, you know, a lot of cultural peer pressure could have could could uh, mount in another direction, and there could still be some sort of split, right, Dominic? Correct, and that's 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 reason I'm saying it is unchartered uh, because all of the things that you just said are possible, and so just gonna a lot's gonna depend on where people are and how the issues are framed. Uh, and presented by the SJC. So they're going to be in a very um, sensitive and tenuous place. So uh, we need to pray the Lord give them wisdom and give the church wisdom along the way. But here we have at least a an update from the SJC about what will you know take place next. And um, you let, use that as a reason to pray for wisdom and guidance for uh, that part of the church. The SJC is very prominent uh, and does a good work within the PCA to uh, help uh, d- you know deal with um, critical issues, uh, all judicial, of course, uh, that where there may be disputes about interpretations of the um, book of church order or uh, some procedural matter that has affected the life of the church in a lower level, and so they they can hopefully have the wisdom of Solomon and uh, and help to. Um, mediate those things and mitigate them as well. Yeah. So, okay, well, that's going to be an important one. So that's number one. Number two is an article written by Dr. Dewey Roberts. Uh, the title is, This Neoliberalism is Worse Than Neo-Orthodoxy. There's a lot of big words there. Uh, the Neoliberalism and Neo-Orthodoxy. Neo, of course, meaning new. So there's a new liberalism and a new orthodoxy. That is uh, being uh, referred to. And basically, the theme of uh, this one, this set number two uh, hit article 
is the that both that is Dr. Roberts uh, speaks of it at both neoliberalism and the orthodoxy, both of them as being um, heretical or at least wayward from um, orthodox Christianity. And so basically he's saying that uh, the neoliberalism is something that's really right, sort of shown itself more recently. Uh, it's basically, he says in this article, it is subtle, insidious, and dangerous. It's a new form of legalism. All heresies are one form or other of legalism, and the new expression of this heresy is quite subtle because it does not appear at first glance to be opposed to the gospel, but he says, however it is. And so he says that the in this neo this neoliberalism is that it's bringing in a different way, a different type of maybe progressive approach to looking at Christianity and the Scripture. He um, contends that it ties it back to um, Marxism as a philosophical uh, 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 component of of this uh, neoliberalism and that therefore were flowing uh, sort of a mixture of Marxism and Christianity put together in such a way that it creates this uh, problem. And he ties it also uh, to movements like the Black Lives Matter. And this is not talking about not just the idea that Black Lives Matter, but the, the movement of Black Lives Matter, because there are uh, many are making a distinction between the notion of just the idea that black lives do matter and then the movement that is an organization uh, that has, um, you know, is sort of a, uh, an entity uh, to itself. And so as a result, he um, deals with that. Now, New Orthodoxy comes uh, out of more uh, an older uh, issue that the church has dealt with and has been dealing with. Uh, it's related to Karl Barth, who was a German, a Swiss theologian, actually, uh, but he was German speaking Swiss. And uh, he had quite an impact when he um, developed this new thesis. He grew up under what would be called the general uh, German classical liberalism that was very popular, very much a part of the church life in the latter part of the 19th century and coming into the 20th century. And when War War One took place, it sort of disrupted the sort of the optimistic view that that uh, classical liberalism had, that man was in charge and things were getting better. So it had a faulty view of the fall and the effects of uh, the doctrine of, of sin and the total depravity, that kind of thing. And so uh the 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 uh we're trying to find out where are we going next and uh, Karl Barth wrote a commentary on the um book of Romans and in that he presented a combination of sort of the uh some of what is evangelical using uh traditional evangelical language and he blended it with uh, an existential philosophy that uh, he drew from a uh a Danish um, the, uh, a philosopher named uh, Soren Kierkegaard. And so he sort of combined the two together so that he was talking in evangelical lingo language, 
uh, but at the same time applying more an existential approach and as he interpreted the book of Romans. And so when someone reviewed it, they said, well, this is a new or neo-orthodoxy. In other words, he had moved away from classical liberalism towards orthodoxy, but in the process of moving in that direction, he wrapped it around this existentialism. So that became a real issue in the life of the church, and in some quarters it still is. Uh, now comes neoliberalism, and it um, uh, presents another uh, form, and this time instead of being wrapped around existentialism, it's Christianity mixed with Marxism or some variant thereof. So that's the background to this particular article. It's really good. Uh, it challenged my assumption or, or he kind of redefines legalism in a way you know uh some of you might be familiar with the phrase or, or the idea that the greatest enemy of the gospel is licentiousness and legalism you know kind of opposite ends of the spectrum he basically says with you know his arguments that all of these things that are not the gospel and just the gospel only the gospel end up being some form of legalism which i thought was was very interesting. Also, the Black Lives Matter, you mentioned Black Lives Matter, he mentioned Black Lives Matter. The founders of Black Lives Matter are Marxists. Uh, they are avowed Marxists. So, you know, then that comes into this idea of, okay, well, we do have situations where uh, in evangelical circles, this seems to be, you know, creeping in. We have leaders who uh, somehow are essentially uh, now trying to bridge a gap between Marxism and Christ. And it's it's quite interesting. It's it's almost like, well, their hearts are in the right place. Well, hang on a second. They're atheists. You know, I mean, that's a key tenet of Marxism is atheism. And so it's fascinating to me how we have some people doing mental gymnastics, Dominic, to try to make, you know, a square peg fit in a round hole. And it's it's obvious that, you know, how can your heart be in the right place or your worldview um, ha we're going to accept your, your worldview because you have these things, right? But you're denying the very existence of God. You're, you're literally trying to take away from God. The creation of life itself is something that is a huge red flag. And for whatever reason, we have, we have people that are not willing to see a giant red flag and then say, okay, well, because you get the beginning wrong, I can't trust anything else you say after that. People are afraid these days, I think, of that kind of black and white assessment. But that's, for the most part, I think that's uh, it's a good assessment. It's a good way to look at new ideas, especially when, well, in this case, the ideas are not new. They're old. They're just repackaged, uh, very much like paganism seems to be repackaged from culture to culture. And that's that's what I look at this. These are these are ideas that are being added to the gospel. We have to have the gospel plus this, the gospel plus social justice, the gospel plus Black Lives Matter. And it is very dangerous, in my opinion. And uh, this article does a great job. The very first uh, sentence, there is a terrible heresy that is eroding the foundations of many denominations in our time. It's a great piece. Yes, uh, it is. Uh, Dewey uh, Robertson's Marxism has a long history of opposition to Christianity. This opposition to Christ is already be proclaimed in the church by neo-Marxists. 
and they are being aided and abetted by the neoliberal ministers in the church, and that's basically his concern. So it is a good article. I think it is. I like to say when we have these things that if you're in a small group and you're in discussion about what's happening in the church and culture today, uh, this one it would be something that you only want to consider uh, reading together. So that's the. Um, passage here the second one this neoliberalism is worse than the orthodoxy so we commend that to you uh then we have number three takes us in a totally different direction and it's a report of the death of um, a man who had served the lord for 69 years uh, of his life in um, in formal ministry and it's entitled pca minister uh, ron ron harold parish uh, called home to glory. Actually, uh, we know him as Henry. Um, uh, excuse me, uh, Parish. Uh, I mean, PCA Minister Ron Parish, right? Um, who uh, was uh, was affected by uh, COVID. Now, you remember people saying, uh, "Do you die with COVID or you die of COVID?" In this case, it was he died with it because there were some uh, other. Um, uh, your comorbidities, as, as they like to say. And uh, so this is a write-up uh, from, again, Dewey Roberts, who was his college roommate, uh, Bellhaven College in, or University now in Jackson, Mississippi. And they got to know each other and spent many times. And then even after they graduated, remained very, very close friends. And so he wrote this as a tribute uh, to his real close friend, um, uh, Ron Parrish. Uh, Ron was most recently uh, and spent the last uh, 20-some years as an assistant pastor at the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia. And uh, he apparently had quite uh, a, an effect there in his ministry. His warm personal attention to people, caring for them, pastoring them, and so forth was very engaging. So uh, it's a very heartwarming uh, tribute to uh, a faithful uh, uh, minister of the gospel uh, who he suffered for quite a while. He was in the hospital for a number of months. Uh, and sometimes, it, it, as the article says, that his wife was told by the medical staff, well, we're not sure if he's going to make it through the night. And then he would, he'd rally. And he got to the point where he was actually going to therapy before he was released. And then he had a relapse and uh, the Lord called him home. Uh, to his glory. So uh, it's a heartwarming, very um, humble uh, tribute to a man who served the Lord faithfully. We should all be so lucky, you know, when we pass to have uh, something like this, as sweet as this written about us. Oh, it is. Isn't it great to, to have something? I'm thinking um, about what, uh, how Paul put it when he talked about the resurrection of Christ in um, uh, Acts 13, verse 36. He is making a point that as great as David was, he says, his tomb is still with us. But this other one, and so that when David had served the purpose of God in his generation, he fell asleep. And that's a great way. And that's what I was thinking about as I read uh, this tribute to Ron Parrish. So we uh, uh, commend his testimony. And the scripture says their uh, truth and their lives lift afterwards. And he will have uh, effects in, in the, not only his family's lives, but in the lives of people uh, that he ministered to, and they will carry it forward for a generation or more. So that's wonderful to be able to rejoice in. 
Okay, article number four is so takes us in a different direction with talking about John Calvin. Usually we talk about him with reference to Geneva or his institutes or uh, the great effect that he had in culture. And in this one, it was his uh, relationship with his wife, Idolette, and how he how they met and the kind of life they had together as husband and wife. Uh, she herself was a became a widow when her husband died. And they were, she and her husband were actually had come out of uh, the um, um, the independent movement of the Reformation. Sometimes we call it the Anabaptists. And those are the folks who believed in that you could be baptized again. And the Anabaptists uh, were very prominent on the continent, and especially uh, they believed in uh, that they would not want anything to do with the church-state relations. They wanted to be free of that. They practiced uh, only believers baptism at that time almost all of the reformers were believing in infant baptism as well as believers baptism and but when uh, calvin was put out of uh, geneva by the city council in 1538 he and william farrell then moved down to strasbourg and they spent what would be three years they didn't know i thought he, calvin thought he was going to be the rest of his life there and there he was not only teaching, but he was also preaching regularly, not only to French-speaking refugees from uh, France, but also uh, to other refugees from around the continent and also from England and Scotland and so forth. They uh, wound up there. So he had quite a ministry. He was there for three years from uh, 1538 to 1561 before the uh, the, church, the uh, city fathers in Geneva said, well, we really got rid of a Jew just because of certain other reasons. So they begged him to come back, and, which he did. And he and Calvin finished out the rest of his life back in Geneva from 1541 until 1564. But anyway, while he was uh, it ministering and preaching regularly in Strasbourg, uh, he met Idlet and her husband. And then he then her husband um, uh, died. And then it was uh, Calvin's probably one of his closest friends uh, who um, boots her that suggested to Calvin that he might want to uh, look at this widow as a potential mate for himself. And so he, he, Calvin knew them, the couple, he appreciated them. They appreciate their spirit. They had joined his church. They had left Anabaptism and had come into the reform movement. And uh, so it says Calvin realized that Idolette indeed appeared to have a character that he was seeking. And so uh, she was married, a young widow with two children uh, and her former husband, uh, Jean, who was a cabinet maker from Liege. And they, um, uh, he, he knew them well and appreciated them very much. So anyway, they came, um, you know, around to the point where Calvin finally uh, proposed and she accepted. And uh, they had a wonderful relationship. And this is an article uh, written as number four on our list, uh, written by Joel Beakey, who is the president of uh, Puritan Reform Seminary in Grand Rapids. You know, this is one of those, uh, you know, I'm just ignorant of, and uh, I learned a lot. So if you want to know a little bit about, uh, you know, the, the, the woman behind the man, this is a good one.
Right. Well, it's uh, interesting. Just a, one thing about character. It says to make room for Idolette and her children in his little home in Strasbourg, Calvin had to let two of his renters go because he was probably making some money. He didn't make a whole lot of money like a lot of pastors may not. Uh, letting these sources of revenue go was a significant sacrifice for Calvin, considering his meager salary. But uh, he appears to have made it gladly. And only weeks after he was married, he wrote to Farrell, that's William Farrell, who was another close friend, about how pleased he was with his new wife. And um, he also, um, uh, and as Vandenberg writes, Calvin clearly found marriage a special experience of joy. And Vandenberg goes on to say that their marriage was more than simply a rational agreement. It became a true and solid bond of love and loyalty. The quiet and patient Idolette was quite exceptionally suited, suitable friend in marriage. So that's a nice thing. You get another sort of that personal side of Calvin, uh, his relationship with his wife, and uh, and it's a uh, it's a beautiful love story, and uh, we commend that to you. Okay, well then, see number uh, five of our articles is keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And um, this one is by um, Aunt Amy Hall, <clears throat> and it's an article about how when we get discouraged that we tend to either stand still or go backwards, and he, uh, she just urges us not to be discouraged and walk backwards, and it also is tied to uh, how we handle um the problems in the world, the cultural issues. And so she makes reference to a book that we have been referring to almost every week for the last three or four weeks now because it's having such an impact, Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, in which um, she then says he, he raises issues of the culture, but instead of looking causing causing us to be uh, frightened or go into escapism or hide behind a wall or under a cover or something, uh, how he calls us to engage culture, be do so with knowledge and understanding. So she said, this is the task of every Christian, but especially of you, the Christian who has a God-given desire to study ideas, explain them to others, and reach out to those who disagree. The Christian who visits stand to reason for just this purpose. Now it is not the time to give in to despair. Now is the pr precise time for which we have been training our minds and character. So it, that's what she, that's where the title uh, Move Forward comes. Uh, be aware, uh, study the times, uh, know how to speak to it, uh, be culturally aware with the knowledge here, and so that we can address biblical reason and rationality into the discussion that is so much needed in our culture today. I like the uh, citation, 2 Timothy 3, 13 through 14. She writes, uh, puts that in here uh, in between, I think, the second and last paragraph. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced. Um, it's uh, it's good. I mean, it's, it is it is encouraging. So, I mean, I think uh, she certainly accomplished what she set out to. Uh, it is very easy to get discouraged. Um, especially with what we are bombarded with every single day uh, in the news. And me personally, I mean, somebody, I, I follow the news pretty close. And so it sometimes you just have to take a break and uh, and understand that 
you know, just our God conquered death. So uh, things are going to be okay. Good. And that's, it is good for it. So that's just encouragement. Be aware that we live in this time. And as I like to say to the students that I teach in my church history classes, that my little mantra, and they know it well, every single generation of God's church exists in a time, whether it's the first century or the 21st, where they have to understand the times and be able to speak into it uh, without caving into it and accommodating to it. And so that we can, the gospel has a fresh perspective. It has an answer uh, for it. So move forward uh, with this knowledge and don't be frightened by uh, the things that you, uh, we see. Okay, then we come to article number six in the Equal Report weekly uh, review and weekly review. Biden's promise to pass, quote, the Equity Act in his first 100 days as president. There's an article by Danny Burke, uh, <clears throat> who um, is a uh, works at the Boyce, teaches at Boyce College and uh, in uh, Louisville, Kentucky, and he quite a, a writer and commentator on, uh, you know, cultural things. Uh, the Equity Act is a specific act. It says, um, uh, which would, uh, dealing with, how to bring equity into our culture. So it's a, obviously a cultural thing. Uh, let's say this, um, uh, he makes this, the, the Equity Act will make things even worse because it goes even further than Bostock. Now, Bostock was the Supreme Court decision about the uh, giving equality to uh, all uh, forms of uh, marriage and sex, sexual relations or sexual identities. Whereas Bostock still, uh, left the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in place as, poss- as possible defense for religious dissenters. The Equity Act removes the RF, um, RFRA, which is the Freedom uh, Religi- Religious Freedom Re- Restoration Act, as a defense for religious dissenters. So, what the um, what basically uh, Denny Burke is uh, saying in this article is that the Equity Act would in essence, try and make things completely level across the board so that no one group the claim is would be able to make any kind of claim uh, that it uh, takes priority. But the point that Denny Burke is making is that wouldn't really be the case. Uh, It would actually subliminate all things that are uh, specifically religious and religious expression uh, and bring it under uh, the scrutiny of government to the point where you could be held accountable for uh, life itself, uh, for uh, things that you say in speech. And it may even affect uh, whether or not you could uh, preach from certain passages from the Bible or speak to people about it uh, using those passages that refer to uh, ethical matters uh, and not be held accountable for that. So it's an important uh, point about the uh, Equiac. It sounds uh, docile, but in reality, according to Burke, uh, it isn't that. So it's uh, something we should be aware of that we won't be wake up one day and it's passed and uh, it has a negative impact on us. Yeah, you know, this is uh, this is inter- intertwined with all of the, you know, stories you've heard and the court cases you've heard over the last decade about a Christian baker or Christian florist. And essentially, if this passes practically, what it's going to do 
is it's going to prevent you from having a business if you're a Christian uh, and, and you want you reserve the right to you know not participate in uh, ceremonies you consider to be religious or have religious significance and and uh, and it's going to get even worse essentially unless you totally agree with every level of depravity and immorality that's promoted by the government or promoted by you know the people who uh, support such things they they don't want you to have a spot in commerce. Uh, that's where this is headed. It's not even ten steps. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty easy to see. That's what the Equality Act is going to do. It did dawn on me when I read this, Dominic. I am fascinated with uh, some in the church who seem to uh, be in this snare of allowing the culture to influence it versus uh, influencing the culture. And I feel like it's happening again, and I, but I've never heard anyone say this, so I'm going to say it. The uh, There's a phony lie that, that's going on uh, in secular society that the LGBTQ people uh, have the same plight that uh, blacks, African-Americans have in this country historically with slavery and then the civil rights movement. And that is something that is uh, fundamentally embraced now. Uh, in our in our culture, that it's the it's the next civil rights movement. It is akin to, uh, you know, uh, overcoming slavery. And of course, it's that's absolute nonsense, in my opinion. That's not true, but that's what's being promoted. And I think in an effort to not be lumped in with what uh, some of the errors that the church made in the past, uh, you know, when it comes to maybe taking verses out of context to support racial segregation or to, uh, and, you know, support racism. There are people that are now buying into this phony cultural narrative that the LGBTQ people are this. It's the same thing. And we don't want to be on the wrong side of history now. And I, I see that uh, is what is what is happening. I feel like we are embracing something that is uh, just fundamentally the presuppositions are not correct. And so we we have that's why we have this movement here. It's another example, and I, that might have taken too many words to say it, but I think it's another example of us allowing the culture to kind of influence. And while that's not specifically what this article is about, it's about warning us of what's coming down the pike. It's how my mind works, and it's what popped in there when I read it. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to say it. Yeah, no, and that's good. And it's it's something again that because of the history that we have in the United States with the whole issue of uh, religious liberty, uh, this seems to smack against it if it moves in that direction, where we're already seeing it without it, the attempt to cancel culture, to um, say that there's certain words can't be used or certain concepts that can't be articulated because they somebody is going to be offended by it. Well, the nature of speech means that someone's going to like it and some people are not going to like it. And so the answer to uh, uh, some speech is more speech, uh, really, and as opposed to trying to determine what is ultimately true, since there's so many worldviews and so many systems that uh, someone is going to lose out. So the best thing is for the government not to engage in it. And given our history in this context where we live, then we have a right to uh, speak up and say, let's make sure that we do have equality that we don't want to uh, overwhelm other people. We don't want to be rude or nasty or so forth, but we have to be free to be able to articulate what our uh, views are. It ends up this way. In the meantime, all of us who care about religious liberty need to understand what is at stake and be ready. Also, we need uh, our elected representatives who care about religious liberty 
to hold the line for as long as possible. The longer yeah. like-minded lawmakers uh, can delay the Equal Equality Act, the better. And I want to remind everybody, for if you have any friends in your life who are slippery slope deniers, uh, back in the 90s, in the Clinton administration, Al Gore and Bill Clinton stood on the White House lawn and gave a speech, you can go look it up, about the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, it, it used to be something that everybody agreed on, um, and it's no longer the case because things just seem to get <laughs> seem to get worse and worse and worse. Uh, and I will add one more thing: hate speech isn't a real thing. <laughs> right, and that'd be for another time, or maybe an article yeah. that will come up uh, on that. So <laughs> the um, the next one, the seventh um, article that was hit most and read most by our readers of the Ecola Report uh, is uh, a, uh, a pastoral statement from the College of Bishops from the uh, Anglican Church of North America, ACANA, A-C-A-N-N-A. And uh, so it's on sexuality and identity. Um, and so this is a letter that was uh, put together by the College of Bishops of Econa, which is the Anglican movement, of course, started in England. In fact, Anglican comes out of the Latinized English, England. A England is England. So you have that A-N in there. And the uh, Episcopal Church in the United States is the Anglican Church in the um, UK. So it's the same movement. <clears throat> and so when it came here, it because it has an Episcopal form that is a bishop form of government. It took, in, in the U.S., it became known as Episcopalianism while it came out of Anglicanism. But in any case, the, uh, the, the, uh, when there was a division, uh, a movement out of the uh, Episcopal Church here in, uh, in the United States a number of years ago, uh, the Anglican Church in North America was one of the first of a number. There's a couple of other uh, Anglican movements out of the Episcopal Church because of its drift into uh, liberalism. That the uh, so they are still set up as uh, you know Episcopalian in terms of the uh, rule by uh, bishops, and so the bishops then get together and they form the council that uh, gives. Uh, religious teaching, they hold to the 39 articles of the Christian religion. That's their confessional statement. Uh, it was written around uh, 1550, 51, 52. And um, it was uh, put together mainly by Thomas Cranmer and was the, and has been the doctrinal position, at, at least on paper, of the Anglican or Episcopal movement. So uh, the question, of course, comes up in this. And so at the very beginning, the bishop say the bishop of the Anglican Church in North America offered this pastoral statement to the church after prayer study, careful listening to desperate voices, that is different voices, and a collective process involving con contributions from across the province. And by province, they mean the life of the church. As a result of this process, we have become more, even more acutely aware of the power we all need to live faithfully in Jesus Christ as he redeems the whole of our identity, including our sexuality. And so he talks about the, how the uh, College of Bishops put together this uh, statement in uh, uh, January 2020 after they had heard reports of varied applications among the, Amer uh, the Anglican Church North American leaders. And so they wanted to have a unified thrust in this and uh, comment 
And so they go through it. And it's a very sensitive piece. It's very pastoral. They intended to be a pastoral. Uh, but uh, in speaking it pastorally, they do um, deal eventually with, uh, in the letter, uh, it's, I think it prints out to about six pages, identity and transformation. And uh, because the issue of identity uh, in the whole sexual arena is has become a very central and a core factor. And so they... Uh, attack that or deal with it and indicate that basically identity has to be identity with Christ. That's where we find our true uh, point of reference. If we're claiming to be in Christ and our identity is in Christ, the way I like to put it personally, they don't say it this way, is there really only two identities that we can have. So our identity is either an Adam, which is our old self, or identity is in Christ, which is our new self. Uh, and we don't have to put any other adjectives in front of the fact of who we are in, uh, as Christians. So either in Adam or in Christ. So this is a really helpful uh, article. You go through it and you, I uh, think, find it very encouraging uh, that the uh, College of Bishops for this of the denomination has um, presented it uh, itself to us. It says, in uh, conclusion, in summary, we recommend this statement to be used as a guide for those in teaching or counseling ministries. Request the provincial publications, again, that's the denominational ones, teaching events and seminars employ the recommended language and biblical arguments that support this recommendation. Upholding our commitment to the subsidiarity, we defer to diocesan bishops, that is the their lower level of bishops, to discern these matters within their own area of diocese, communities, and ministries. And so um, I think it'd be worthwhile, again, small group, good discussion, uh, parse the language and be help one another come to know more about this aspect of the life of the church. Yeah, I, I think uh, it was encouraging to read this and to read the the stance for biblical truths. As you said, it was uh, it's a very pastoral statement. I have a little, just a slightly thought, you know, the thought I had of reading it may be something you disagree with uh, a little bit, Dominic. I, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, just the thought was, I don't know how helpful some of these statements are in, in, in the grand scheme of things with what's going on, just in terms of it seems, I know it's pastoral, I know it is, but it seems it's more defensive than offensive. And I think we have this, we are we are defending essentially across the spectrum here, the denominational sp- uh, uh, spectrum, uh, you know, uh, infiltration of, of faith where we're calling something uh, that's bad, good and, and that sort of thing. And um, that that to me is it, it's almost like. The need <laughs> the need to issue the statement, and I know you'll probably disagree with this. Uh, the need to issue this statement, I almost feel we've already lost the argument because the subject matter is so black and white. If you take the whole counsel of Scripture, does that make sense? Yeah. And 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 you know, I'm not saying that statements aren't useful when when denominations do it. I'm not saying that they can't be. It's just as I'm reading this, and I've read others. You know, I've read other statements on sexuality. Um, you know, for, for example. The, the statement in general is good, but I get down here to the third part where it says identity and language. OK, it says third, as part of our renewed commitment of pastoral care, 
Again, that that's the good. They're very well intended. We believe it is important to lovingly give counsel about the use and misuse of labels, designations, and language regarding same-sex desire. Specifically, a debate is currently unfolding among bi- biblically orthodox Christians as to the most appropriate language to describe a follower of Jesus uh, who experiences same-sex attraction. Some argue for the term gay Christian. Others prefer to use the phrase same-sex attracted. Still, others employ both terms interchangeably depending upon the context. At the same time, we recognize that within these particular circles of Christians, all agree the same-sex practice in marriage are contrary to the scriptures. Or to the scriptures, at first glance, this debate can appear to be much ado about nothing. A newcomer to the conversation might understandably question whether this is simply an arcane or unnecessarily divisive argument. I guess when I got to that point of the statement, I was just like, "Have we lost the argument here?" I mean, mm-hmm. you know, like you said. You're either Adam or your new self, or another way, you're either you're either in the end a sheep or a goat, and um, that to me, you know, I know it's complex, and I know I, I respect obviously because again I say this I'm I'm not a pastor, uh, you know, of of a congregation or anything, um, and so I respect that, and and but I, at the same time, what I was thinking was you know how how in the in the grand scheme of things. Uh, helpful is this have we not already lost the argument on something that is is very basic you know we're not we're not talking about you know this is these these aren't giant theological questions here you know we're like oh you know we're not debating necessarily these these you know the character of god in these statements we're we're debating something that is uh that is that is infiltrating and it kind of it goes back to you know the earlier articles that we talked about already today on the show Yes, and, and and that's the compromise. And I really think the difference here is if you look at this uh, letter, pastoral letter that these bishops uh, put together, that be, because it is a pastoral letter, it has the statements of the paragraph that you quoted. And if you read the recently released um, study paper uh, that the study committee from the Presbyterian Church in America um, has not yet been able to present to GA because we have a, a general assembly because we haven't met. Uh, you will find that it, one is very uh, factual. Uh, the the paper on the um, you you know what is the what does the scripture and the confession say about uh, human sexuality uh, versus this one because that one wasn't intended as a quote pastoral letter. It was intended what do our documents say and how we should proceed. So, uh, but it when you t- t- get it all down to the bottom line, it, they come out about the same. It's just that when you're sitting across the room for somebody and you're doing counseling or you're uh, encouraging or you're speaking to or trying to define things um, in, in, in the pastoral offices I've done many times uh, with, with uh, many issues, uh, you sort of go through a routine where you're creating a context and in order for the individual who's wrestling with this to be able to understand uh, the pros and cons and the the passions and so forth that are involved. So I think I read it more in that pastoral sense yes, that definitely. it wasn't caving in, but it was uh, and, and we face those things, um, you know, all the all the time. So that's the basis um, um, which I would do it. But it's. I would commend it to you because it does communicate that pastoral concern. And if you have someone who's struggling with same-sex attraction or homosexuality or any kind of sin, basically, you can apply the dynamics that are here in this letter uh, to assist them uh, in thinking through what what is it that God says and what does God desire for our lives. So it's a healthy one. And that was um, number seven on the 
uh, top 10 for this week. And now we have uh, number eight. And number eight is uh, one that is it's quite intriguing because maybe it goes along with what we've just been <laughs> <Yeah>. saying. <laughs> when division is necessary, dash, divide. And normally you'd say when division is necessary, uh, come on, guys, see if you can kiss and make up. You know, that, that's what you would expect. And I think that uh, this is an article by uh, Josh Bice. And uh, he basically is saying if the issue really is the nature of truth, uh, then it you, you really can't get around. If it's something that's more emotional, you can work, you know, work things out a little bit more. Uh, you'd still need to debate what the truth is, whatever it may be. But you need to be able to say if we really can't agree on the same truth that is our the theological teachings, the instruction that we're to give, then something uh, has to give. So um, some people are more committed to unity than truth, are willing to com- compromise the truth in order to achieve unity. Others who are more committed to truth are willing to uh, compromise relationships and unity in order to defend the truth. So what road should we travel? There is another. Is there another option? And uh, basically, the other option that uh, Bice gives us here is that uh, maybe sometimes you, you have to go your separate ways. And this goes back to some of what we've already spoken about with other articles, let's say, talking about the neoliberalism and uh, the Marxist background to that. It, that is a different uh, kind of the, uh, background, and uh, theologically speaking, and, and those two can't coexist. So uh, what... What uh, the issue is that sometimes we need to divide if, in fact, it is a basis of uh, of truth. Um, so what he what Vice gives us here, for instance, when we look at modern examples, one of them he turns to, he goes back into the latter part of the middle of the 19th century when Charles Spurgeon was involved in a controversy that took the name uh, was given the name downgrade controversy which uh, stood passionately against those who were liberal, who had a low view of scripture and sought to lead the Baptist Union in a downward spiral away from the truth. And Spurgeon sort of took up the mantle on the other side, and he was addressing the compromising among the Baptists in England. He penned a downgrade in the churches where he wrote just, and he just gives one comment from uh, Spurgeon, a chasm is opening between men who believe their Bibles and those who are prepared for an advance upon the scriptures. Uh, The house is being robbed. Its very walls are being digged into, but the good people who are in bed are too fond of the warmth to go downstairs to meet the burglars. And uh, so what he is saying is that sometimes we need to uh, understand that there is a truth issue that's involved. That's the base of it. So it's not the relational. Now, I've done a lot of church consulting, and I've basically, based on my experience, have said that most, uh, that at least 90% of the issues that we face in church are relational. Uh, The other are most likely uh, doctrinal or truth issues. And if that's true, then that means that uh, we really should, you know, be dealing with the, the relational aspects that deals with the heart our relationship with other people and so forth. And that, so that, that, and those should not really be the reasons for leaving because the scripture tells us how we reconcile. But if it's that 10%, if it's, if I'm correct about the 10, then there, 
the only way we can come together is if we believe what the truth is. And if we don't, then there's going to be uh, some kind of division. And I think that's what uh, Bice is talking about in this article. Yeah, there just it does does seem to be uh, you don't want to know anybody. Nobody wants to see anything divided, you know. Uh, but I, I saw somebody uh, post the other day it said something about you know the the this progressive uh, this progressive influence that keeps the neoliberalism that keeps raising its head. Will it end in apostasy or repentance? And I think that's the prayer that we should all have in this context is you know. Pray that God grants repentance uh, if if it really is rising to that level where, you know, division may be necessary. Right. OK, well, that's number eight. Number nine is uh, very practical because uh, being a pastor and uh, being been married now for close to 52 years, I can identify with this one. Five myths about being a pastor's wife. And it was written by a pastor's wife, uh, Janny uh, Ortland, uh, married to Ray Jr., Ray Jr., uh, Ortland Jr. And um, and it's basically it's part of a larger work uh, book that she has uh, written about ministry. Uh, Help, I'm married to my pastor. <laughs> so, of course, she's married to her husband, of course. Encouragement for ministry and wives. And it's so this is a portion of that book, Help, I'm married to a pat my pastor uh is um just five common myths what are these myths that are uh that we face and uh, happens and why uh you know pastors and pastors wives struggle in churches because they, they cross denominational boundaries and uh, different lines and so forth these seem to be so uh so true so myth number one that johnny gives us is my pastor's wife is biblically educated or at least they assume that, so that's a myth. Uh, how every pastor's wife wishes this were true. They wish they had taken all the courses they, their husband did. It would make feedback on her husband's Sunday sermon so much easier, she says. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we get the feedback anyway, I can guarantee you that. Uh, it would help when uh, she asked uh, to bring the devotion at the next baby shower or to teach the eighth grade girls Sunday school class, or to lead the new Bible study for the women's ministry. The assumption is that if you're a pastor's wife, you have all the giftings of your husband, and therefore you're like almost like an assistant pastor, and you can do whatever he does when he can't do it, and you can step in and do it. And uh, she explains uh, why this is a common myth and is not necessarily true. While there are many pastor's wives who are very gifted in these areas. There are others who are gifted in other areas and not necessarily uh, in the seminary trained version of uh, preparation. Uh, number two, it says, my pastor's wife has spiritual gifts that she will use publicly uh, in our church. And again, this is based on the same myth and the concept of false myth that if you are married to the pastor, that means that just like the pastor sort of given every gift and he's supposed to do everything. So if he's married this woman, he's going to be, you know, he's going to have the same. Uh, she's going to have all these gifts as well. So you can ask her to do anything in the life of the church because she has every gift. And and the way and pastors wives really feel that 
paying real clear for it. Just as a personal note, I've usually told uh, committees that I've worked with, uh, even either talking to me or as they're getting ready to do their interviews with uh, potential candidates, is I said, just when you're talking to the pastor's wife, do not assume that these things. So I, I resonate with these uh, common myths uh, that you find out wh- where what particular gifts the pastor's wife really believes that she has. In the case of my wife, I can tell you that she basically has gifts of hospitality and mercy, uh, very sensitive in both of those uh, areas. And uh, she definitely would say that number, myth number one is true of her, that she didn't get the, uh, the education in the, uh, in the seminary, and that's not her forte naturally. And so what has God given her? Mercy of, um, of uh, mercy and hospitality, very helpful uh, in coming alongside of, you know, the ministry that I've had. Uh, easy. My uh, Number three is it's easy for my pastor's wife to build a family superior to mine. And again, you can see why that would be a myth. Number four, my pastor's wife doesn't care about me because she doesn't remember my name. Now, that'd be true if I guess if you're in a larger church, it you have a, many more names to you know, but but uh, uh, most pastors' wives that I know of know the members' names, uh, and they do pray for them regularly. And number five, my pastor's wife is so well connected at church; she doesn't need me, and uh, which is also a definitely a myth and definitely a falsehood. Now, you can speak at it from a lay position, there, Paul. Well, I, I would say, you know, it's a good good article. It was food for thought. Only thing I have to say is 52 years, Dominic. Congratulations. <laughs> 52. That's, yes, that's right. something to... Yeah, that's she, something my wife's going to get an extra star in her crown. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> that's what everyone says. And I said, why? what do you mean by that? I, you know, I'm... You know, come on, you're making me sound like an ogre here. And my <laughs> wife would say, shaking her head in the corner. Yeah, that's about right. Yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, she she will def, she's been long suffering. So that's <laughs> so anyway, the good one uh, number nine. So five myths being a pastor's wife, and if you uh, are either pastor's wife or you're somebody you know that it has these expectations, these will challenge you to reorient yourself and get get off the common myths bandwagon and realize both the pastor and his wife are just human beings. And they have the particular calling and and don't put them in a box where they can't function as they would love to be able to. Okay, we come down to number 10, the last one, uh, the eclipse of the gospel and the school of hard knocks. How's that for a title? This by David Steele, the eclipse of the gospel and um, the school of hard knocks. And so. It says, as Christ followers, we must learn well the lessons of church history teaches us. When we forget the past, we falter in our faith and fail to exalt the sovereign purposes of our Savior. And when we forget the past, we become comfortable stumbling around in the dark and begin to glory in our ignorance. Let us become educated in the school of hard knocks. And may the gospel shine brightly again. Uh, for us, and he quotes from Habakkuk, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And may we forever love truth and our passion for the gospel. So basically what David Steele is uh, saying here is that um, he he was spinning off the story from St. John's Cathedral in Edinburgh, which is where John Knox had served 
during the Reformation days in Scotland. And so he spins off of that the uh, the what Knox learned and uh, the, uh, the the gospel lessons. He says, as I made my way out of St. John's, my mind was filled with stories surrounding the life and ministry of John Knox as I turned to gaze again at the rising fortress where Knox served the Lord. A thought occurred to me. It was not a new thought. Rather, it was a lesson that has moved me for many years uh, now. For, but, uh, but in this moment, the lesson was magnified. As I scanned the edifice St. John's, the lessons in, in church that, that is this. Church history matters. You learn from what people did, what they've gone through, and not just the intellectual thing. It goes back to what we talked about with um, John Calvin and his relationship with his wife, Idolette, uh, that there's a whole other side to us than just uh, Bible teaching and so forth. So the gospel is important, and but it has to be lived out. And we learn uh, through experience, and we and the experience has to be picked up and learned uh, by the members of the church as well. Yeah, it was, uh, this part of the article stood out. Second, church history matters because it strengthens our faith. Scripture instructs, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith from Hebrews 13, 7. The term remember is a present imperative verb that means keep thinking about or call to mind. Uh, remembering godly leaders in church history is not optional. It is a command in sacred scripture. And uh, to your point, uh, Dominic, I mean, it's it's a it's a way we can deal with the issues and great challenges that we are facing today. Uh, And you have spoken on this podcast many times, being an expert in church church history that, you know, basically, you know, these things have happened before and they're going to happen again. Absolutely. And we've we we will we always come up to it. And and by the way, the verse, the the citation on that is Exodus 1 8. There arose a king in Egypt that forgot about Joseph. He knew uh, not Joseph. Yeah. And so as a result, he said, where did all these Hebrews come from and how did they get here? And instead of studying his history books, he uh, just said, we need to enslave them because they're growing. Their numbers are growing faster than the Egyptians. They were having more babies. And so he said, we're going to put the kibosh on this, and the slavery ensued, all because he forgot history. And I'll I'll, ra- I'll see you, Exodus, and I'll raise you, uh, Daniel 9, when he's praying and he's reading the prophet Jeremiah, and he's like, you know, he's studying, uh, and he's he's like, oh man, our captivity's almost over. Yes, sir. Uh, so it's this kind of, the, it's, it's uh, you know, we have the example out there, and we have people... Uh, you know that are not in scripture i think that's the key point he's making about hebrews you know we we have other not just the 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 leaders that the book of hebrews mentions but also you know people like luther people like calvin Um, we need to be mindful of what they went through absolutely well paul we've come to the end of another um broadcast and the aquila report and weekly review with the top 10 read articles by the readers of the aquila report and uh, the, if you're on the news list, uh, the newsletter list, you will receive uh, these 10 uh, articles, the links to them uh, in the newsletter tomorrow. You can still sign up today at the and it will 
uh, we will get that on the list of today and then you will have it tomorrow. And we trust that you will join us each week, uh, each Monday, any time during the week, even reviewing uh, after the fact uh, what we saw and what we said with regard to these top 10. So it's a delight for Paul Harrell and Dominic Aquila to be a part of you each week and trust that you will continue to join us on a regular basis.